children would be dismissed for Children's Church this morning with Miss Diana and Miss Rachel, I believe. And so as they go, I would invite you to open a Bible with me, if you have one, to the Gospel of John, to John chapter 1. If you find the book of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, and then make your way towards the back, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John is the fourth gospel, John chapter 1. I invite you to follow along as I would read God's word aloud, verses 29 through 39. John chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. Scriptures say, the next day John, and this is speaking of John the Baptist, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. And so they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. May the Lord add his blessing this morning to the reading of his word. And this morning we start a new series that will take us over the, the next several months. Uh, a series entitled Lifting Up Our Low View of God. And I, I really uh, believe that this is a, a season that the Lord wants to do something unique in us. And some of the inspiration comes from the book, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And it's a study of the attributes of God and their meaning in the Christian life. And so that's where we're going to be looking over these next um, weeks and months together. Today we're going to specifically be looking at the topic of beholding the Lamb. But to kind of set the, the stage for this series, I want to read a section from the introduction, the preface. Now, what I find to be very interesting as you hear this is recognize that this was written in 1961. 61 years ago. And yet as you hear the words written here, I believe Tozer was not only speaking to his day, but to our day. And to hear his description and what uh, his kind of prophetic voice was in that day, how it has affected and how it has even increased the need to hear this message for the church today. So he writes this in the preface. He says, The message of this book is called forth by a condition 
which has existed in the church for some years and is steadily growing worse. I refer to the loss of the concept of majesty from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little and without her knowledge, and her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. Think about this when he says, the low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet with God in adoring Silence. Now listen to this statement. This is 61 years ago, and I can guarantee things have only become more true of this statement. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the Spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to self-confident bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century. I believe if that was true, and it was in 1961, I believe it's been multiplied maybe a hundredfold. The loss of the concept of majesty has come just when the forces of religion are making dramatic gains and the churches are more prosperous than at any time within the past several hundred years. After this came the church growth movement, mega churches, all these kinds of things. But now we're on the decline. But the alarming thing is that our gains back then and the gains that happened are mostly external. And our losses, wholly internal. And since it is the quality of our religion that is affected by internal conditions, it may be that our supposed gains are but losses spread over a wider field. And I wonder how true that statement is today, 60 years later. The only way to recoup our spiritual losses is to go back to the cause of them and make such corrections as the truth warrants. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. It's impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. As I have read those words and was reminded as thinking for this series... Reminded of how, struck by how true I believe those words were written 60 years ago, diagnosing. This is not to be critical, but just to be 
able to say this is reality. I think we see the church in America on the decline with churches declining both in numbers, in influence, in purity. These things have happened because of our loss of a high view of God. And so I believe in this season that God wants to lift our view of him from a low view of God to a high view of God. When I say low, is we see him as less than who he really is. We create him in our own image, in our own likeness, in our own way, and we lack a vision of the awesome holy God who is completely other than us. But if we can recapture this high view of God, we will be awakened to the majesty of God, as Tozer says, in new ways that will cause us in worship to stand in awe and in wonder of him. And out of this will come deeper, more authentic worship. Deeper, more authentic worship will will come and will cause more fervent and desperate prayer. And will bring a deeper awareness of the presence of God and a more biblical experience of life in the Spirit. And so to do this, we're going to be looking in this uh, kind of as a guide, studying the many attributes of God in order to gain kind of a, a robust view of God as he really is. Today, as we prepare for communion, we want to focus our attention on the Lamb. The Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb. What we behold, we become. What we behold, we become. So this morning, as we look at this, we want to look at the one who encapsulates the fullness of God, and that is Jesus, as we look to communion. To behold the Lamb of God. As we do this, there's four things we want to behold from this passage in John chapter 1. That my prayer this morning is that it would, it would lift our view of who Jesus is. And friends, sometimes, especially if you've been around church for a long time, we can become just kind of, yeah, that's Jesus. This is who he is. But friends, we should never come to the place where Jesus is just, yeah, I know Jesus. I've known Jesus. There should be new discovery of Jesus. And the moment we stop Standing in awe and wonder of Jesus. And the moment we stop being captivated, the moment we stop being overwhelmed by the glory of Jesus and who he is, is the moment our view becomes low. A high view is always being lifted up, is always lifting up Christ, is always captivating of who Christ is. And so you may be saying even this morning, I know this, (laughs) I've read this. I've heard this. My friends, may the Spirit of God take his words this this morning and bring fresh revelation of Jesus to us that will cause us to behold the Lamb in a way we've never beheld him before, even if they're truths that we know. Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb in four ways. Again, sermon notes are in your bold and you can fill some things in. Behold the lamb first, the lamb who takes away sin. Behold the lamb who takes away sin. Verse 29 again, the next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. John was baptizing regularly, preparing the people of God, Israel, the Jewish people, for the coming of the Messiah. It was a baptism of repentance, of saying, God, we have sinned and we need to confess those. And the baptism that John had was a baptism of repentance, preparing the way for the Messiah Jesus to come. And so as he's been baptizing and the people have been coming, declaring their sins, confessing their sins, this baptism of repentance. And this day, John declares, behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This would have evoked many thoughts. It would have evoked many emotions that we may not understand, but they would have deeply for the first century Jew. If you would leave your finger with me in John chapter 1 and go all the way to the front of the Bible to the beginning, uh, the second book of the Bible, Exodus. Exodus chapter 12. I want to read Exodus 12 verses 1 through 13 to give us kind of a foundation of, of where this idea of the Lamb of God Begins and where they would have had concept and what this would have evoked for them. The people of God, Israel, have been in Egypt for 400 years at this point. They have been enslaved. They've been crying out for the mercy of God, and God hears their cry after these 400 years of enslavement and raises up a man named Moses. And Moses has been coming to Pharaoh and been saying, Let God's people go. Pharaoh, every time, it says no, no, no. And his heart becomes harder and harder and harder. And so God unleashes plagues. To this point, nine plagues. And these plagues were not just random. The Egyptians worshipped many gods. And each one of the plagues attacked specifically one of the gods that they worshipped. To be able to declare that the God of Israel is greater than the gods of Egypt. But every time, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And it's time now for the last of the ten plagues. The plague of the angel of death coming and striking down the firstborn of animal and human in the land of Egypt. And so in order to protect God's people and in order to prepare them for their deliverance, their exodus, their leaving the land of Egypt... In what would become a yearly celebration of the Passover, the Lord gives Moses and Aaron these directions to give to the people. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with each person or with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year old males, and hear this, without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then 
They are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. And that same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left, if some, if some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. They are to be ready to leave. On that same night, verse 12, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Lambs were sacrificed on the Passover as a remembrance, as the blood that was shed by the lambs was put on the door frames of the houses of the Israelite, of the Jewish people, as a sign that these are under the covenant relationship of God. These are in obedience, trusting God's protection, trusting God's salvation, trusting God's deliverance. And that night the angel of death came throughout the land of Egypt, striking down every firstborn that was not in a house with the door frames covered in blood. And it set a precedent every year for this to be remembered. Every day in the temple, at morning and at night, there were lambs that were sacrificed in both the morning and the evening for the sins of the people. And then once a year on Passover, this whole celebration, this whole remembrance would be practiced. All of it was needed because as Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The lamb. The lamb. And so all the Jews who would have heard John say this, would have these vivid sensory remembrances come to mind. They would remember, ah, the Passover. They would remember every day the lamb being sacrificed in the morning for the sins of the people. And at evening, the sins being, the lamb, another lamb sacrificed for the sins of the people to cover over all that they would have committed in disobedience to God. They also would have remembered their eyes seen every year a lamb before them be sacrificed. It wasn't done out back, (laughs) kept away from everybody. The families would gather in that home and they would sacrifice the lamb for all of them to see, to remind them, this lamb is dying because of my sin. Their eyes would have been, they would remember those pictures of those animals, those lambs sacrificed. They would remember what their ears had heard the cries and the struggle of the lamb bound before its death. They would have remembered the smells, the smell of death, but they also would have remembered the smell of a lamb being roasted in their home and throughout the city. 
The author Alan Jackson in his book, A Perfect Lamb, estimated that in the city of Jerusalem, as the people would come together to celebrate the Passover, there would be 100,000 homes at that time who would have all been doing this at the same time. You can imagine the smell that would have been evoked all throughout the city, the smell of a roasting lamb all throughout the city, wafting all throughout the city. And so their eyes having seen this, their ears having heard this, their nose having smelled this, their minds having been remembering what the Passover was all about. And then they hear Jesus walking. As he's walking by, they hear John the Baptist say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away sin. So you and I, when we sometimes think of, behold, the lamb who takes away the sin, it's like, yay, Jesus for me, yay, Jesus for us. But they would have understood this so much more deeply than we sometimes get, because this was their life. And for this declaration to be made was no light declaration. This was a huge declaration by John the Baptist. This is the Lamb, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says that Jesus, specifically, he says Jesus is our Passover Lamb. And Peter in 1 Peter 1, 19 says that in remembrance that this lamb had to be without blemish, says that Jesus was without blemish or defect and that his death takes away our sin. John noticed it and declared it. Paul understood it and declared, this is Jesus, our Passover lamb. Peter declared it. He was without blemish or defect. He is our lamb, the one whose blood shed on the cross, takes away our sin. In a few moments, we're going to be celebrating communion together. When we do that, it's not just eating a little wafer of bread and drinking a small sip of grape juice. It is a reminder and a celebration of the Lamb whose body was given and his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Friends, may we have fresh encounters with Jesus that this isn't just something that we know of, but something that causes us to stand in awe and wonder and say, Jesus, your blood shed, you are the lamb whose blood shed and body given for me, for us, takes away our sin. But not only does that bring amazement, but the fact that then, secondly, as we behold the Lamb, the Lamb who is the Son of God. <laughs> Verse 30, John says, This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me, so John's role was first, has surpassed me. His ministry goes beyond my Ministry, his influence goes beyond my influence because he was before me. If you're a Star Wars person, this may sound kind of Master Yoda ish. 
the one who was after me has surpassed me because he was before me. It's kind of like a, sounds like a riddle, but it's not. Go back to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus is the preexistent, always with the Father, before time and forever, God in who has come in the flesh. He's God. He goes on and he says, verse 31, I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was so that he might be revealed to Israel. And then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. The other three Gospels have this account of John baptizing Jesus in the Jordan River. And as he baptizes to fulfill all righteousness, to to walk the same path as we had, even though he's without sin, to walk the same path that we have to. The Spirit of God in the form of a dove comes down and settles on him and remains on him. And the voice of the Father declares for all who could hear, this is my Son, whom I love. In him I'm well pleased. The Lamb is the Son of God. See, when we begin to grasp that the Lamb of God who takes takes away the sin of the world is also the eternal Son of God, fully God, who became fully man, it begins to elevate our vision of God as we see the length to which he takes away our sin. See, the wonder of the eternal God who is completely other than us, taking on flesh in the incarnation and going to the cross to have, in spite of his perfection, have the sin and the weight of the world set on him. The wonder of God becoming flesh should just cause us to go. So often we just want to pass this off and not think deeply about it. (laughs) This is some of Tozer talks about, you know, we settle too much for just kind of shallow thinking. The incarnation, it's mind-blowing. And sometimes because it's mind-blowing, we go, okay, I just accept it. But we need to wrestle with this. How could God become flesh? (laughs) What wonder that God would become flesh and still be fully God and yet not live in his godness, Paul says in Ephesians. Philippians 2. How is that possible? But why in the world would he do it? He did it so that the lamb could come to take away the sin of the world. It had to be. It had to be. May we contemplate the wonder of the incarnation. The wonder of God becoming flesh. The wonder of God becoming like us, to walk amongst us, to bear our sin for us so that he could take it away.
May it stop us in our tracks. And may it launch us to worship. The Lamb who takes away sin, the Lamb who is the Son of God, and the Lamb, we behold the Lamb who baptizes also with the Spirit. Verse 33 again says, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's also the one who baptizes us with the Spirit. Just as John baptized with water, so Jesus baptizes us with the Spirit. We receive this in in two ways. One is that when we come to faith in Christ and the the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, as we trust Him, we place our faith in Him, repent of our sins, He washes us white as snow with His blood, and the Spirit of God comes and takes up residence in us as a seal and as a mark of the ownership of God on our lives. God makes his home in us through the Spirit. Just think of that for a moment. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who is the Son of God, baptizes us with the Spirit, and the Spirit of God, the presence of God, the presence of the Father comes and lives in us. Oh, should our vision be high (laughs) of the God of the universe who resides in us. And as we gather together, we together carry his presence as the Spirit lives in us. Oh, what wonder. The Lamb also does a second thing. He baptizes or fills us in a separate work subsequent to salvation in which as we empty ourselves of sin in our own will, Jim shared that this morning. How do we say, Holy Spirit, you are welcome? It comes to a place where we surrender our will to him. As he heals the wounds and the brokenness of our lives, it cleans us out and we are emptied so that he then comes to fill us, comes upon us. There's the work of the Spirit in us, and there's the work of the Spirit upon us. And friends, as we contemplate the glory of God, as our vision moves from low to high, the Spirit of God begins to come in a way where we begin to recognize and are disgusted by the sin and the brokenness and the effects that plague us, and we become instead more enamored with him, and he comes in a powerful way upon us. We'll look at that as we close one more in a moment. But more than anything, grasp this. The work of of the Lamb allows God to be with us and in us because this is his desire. His desire is not that he is out there, but that he is here. The end of the story in Revelation says that the dwelling of God will be with men. 
And we will be with him forever. The work of the Spirit, the Lamb who baptizes with the Spirit, is the one who makes it possible now. Now. Friends, the Lord is inviting us to lift our view of him in these days in such a way that we begin to recognize the tangible manifest presence of God, that he's not someone out there, but that he is right here with me. And as our vision gets lifted for who God really is, we begin to hunger and desire for him in his presence with us. Behold the lamb who takes away sin, who is the son of God, who baptizes with the spirit and who lastly provokes a response. Verse 35 says, the next day Jesus was there again with two of his disciples The next day, John was there with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by a second time, second time in two days, he says, look or behold the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. These were John the Baptist's disciples. And when they hear John say, behold the Lamb, they leave him and they go after Jesus. Jesus turns around and he sees these two following. He asks, Jesus is a master of questions. What do you want? You know, I believe sometimes our tone can be, when it comes to Jesus, or when it comes to these questions, we may hear it as, what do you want? In other words, Jesus is kind of put off. What do you want? But I don't believe that's the tone of Jesus at all. <laughs> I believe it's the tone of, inf- of invitation. What do you want? What do you want me to do for you? What are you looking for? What are you after? They recognize he's the lamb. And he comes and follows and he says, Ah, oh, what do you want, child? What do you want, my son? What do you want, my daughter? What are you looking for? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come. He replied, and you'll see. And so they went and saw where he was staying and spent that day with him. They see the lamb. They hear the declaration. They're provoked to a response. I have to go be with him. Jesus is not annoyed in any way. He just says, come. Come, come be with me. Come be with me. You see what they were doing? They were giving themselves to him. I want to be where you are, Jesus. If you're the lamb, I've been following John. And I've heard that the one who comes after is the one that will surpass Because you're the son of God, you were before him. I love John and I've been thrilled to follow him, but ah, I want to be with you. It provokes a response of, I want to be with you. The greatest response 
it can provoke in us really is Romans 12.1. Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Notice the lamb was sacrificed. And what is the response when we follow after Jesus? To offer our lives, our whole bodies, our whole selves as sacrifices to him. This is holy and pleasing to God, he says. When the sacrifices were offered, they were consumed. They were burnt. Friends, when we grasp this high view of God, when we see him as he is, when we behold the Lamb of God, he begins to consume us. And that's the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit is to consume us. As we are emptied, as we offer ourselves, we are emptied, and he fills and consumes us. And that may sound like a horrible, scary thing, but it is where life is. When the Spirit consumes us, when the Spirit fills us, when the Spirit leads us, that is where life is. That is where life is. And that is our response. The more we see God as He is, the more we see the Lamb. Jesus as he is, the more we are provoked to follow and to offer ourselves and the more he begins to show us the things that he wants to empty out and the more he shows us the things he wants to empty out, the more we are filled, the more we are consumed, the more his life fills us and is lived through us. As we behold the Lamb. It begins with Jesus. It begins with beholding him. It begins with him. When I was growing up, there would often be, on Sunday nights, we'd go to church in the morning, Sunday school, worship service. The evenings, there'd be a, about 25, 30 minutes of singing at the beginning and then a message, and that was a Sunday evening service. And um, lots and lots and lots of songs that stick with me till still today. And one of them is a song, as I've been thinking this week of this message, and this phrase, Behold the Lamb of God is a simple chorus by Dottie Rambo that I sang growing up on those Sunday nights called simply Behold the Lamb. And I would ask that you would sing it with me. Now, I have heard that the choir here a number of years ago sang this chorus. So some of you may be familiar with it. Others are going to say, I've never heard this song before. 
So if you know it, we're just going to sing it a cappella. If you know it, sing with me, please sing with me. And we're going to sing it through a couple times. It's, it's very simple. I think everyone will be able to pick it up. The words will be on the screen. Behold the Lamb. Okay. Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. Slain from the foundation of the world for sinners crucified O holy sacrifice behold the Lamb of God behold the Lamb try it with me again Behold the Lamb, behold the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world, for sinners crucified, O holy sacrifice behold the Lamb of God behold the Lamb and in worship one more time allow the words to lift your view your view of the Lamb draw you into the presence of the one we are beholding Behold the Lamb, behold the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world, for sinners crucified. O holy sacrifice, behold the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb. Would you just sit in awe of the Lamb and gratefulness of the Lamb? of wonder of the Lamb who is the Son of God, who baptizes with the Spirit, who provokes a response, and in this moment our response is worship and gratitude and adoration. Would you just sit in awe of the Lamb for a moment? We behold you, Jesus, Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. We behold you, Lamb of God, Jesus, who is 
the Son of God, fully God, yet who became fully man. We behold you, Jesus, Lamb of God, who baptizes us at salvation with the Spirit and who desires to give the good gift of your Spirit poured out upon us for holy living and for service. And we behold you, Jesus, Lamb of God, the one who, when we see you as you are, always provokes response. And so we give you our worship this morning. We give you our adoration. We give you the honor you deserve. We give you the glory you deserve. And as you have given your very life for us, we respond by giving our lives to you the best we know how this morning. We give you our very lives this morning. Holy Spirit, have your way. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see the glory of Christ as we celebrate communion. Holy Spirit, may we be emptied a little more of ourselves and filled a little bit more with your presence. We behold you, Jesus, the Lamb of God. We behold you. So if you would take those communion elements and take off the very top layer for the bread. You don't have to be a member of this church, but simply one who has trusted Jesus as Savior and as Lord. Scriptures are clear that if there's anything that you know of that the Lord has been working in your heart that you have been resisting, if there's something between you and him that you're aware of and you have not allowed the Lord to walk you through to make that right, or there's something with another human being here on this earth that there is something in that relationship broken, that it's better just to spend these time in prayer, exalting Jesus, drawing near, settling those things the best you can, and just allowing the elements to pass this morning. Because it is encounter with the one, with the lamb. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. You know, it's interesting, those lambs were bound as they would be sacrificed. When Judas Iscariot came to Jesus in the garden and kissed him to show which one Jesus was, he was bound and led away. And as those sacrifices were made, they were to take great care not to break any bones on the lamb. And Jesus, the lamb of God, though his body was beaten and bruised, at the point where the Roman soldiers would have to break the legs of those who were crucified so that they could not push up anymore to get air. They would break their legs so they could no longer do that. It was before that point that Jesus 
breathed his last. And he said, into my hands, Father, I commit my spirit. The Lamb of God, his bones were not broken. He is the Lamb. His body given for us. We behold him. In worship, in adoration, and in thanksgiving, let us eat the bread together. As we do often, would you just in your own time with the Lord quietly, would you give him honor and worship and adoration for his body given for you?